Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the first episode in season three, I'm calling it season three, <laughs> of uh, Wild Wild Podcast. I am here as ever with my co-host Rod Barnett. Hello Rod. Hello Adrian, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm excited to be switching things up again here to a different genre. Um, I'm also very excited because just recently I booked a plane ticket to Rome. So Ooh. I'm I'm going to Rome again um, for the first time in three years this summer. So I'm very excited about that. So I will go around and uh, I'll get myself a scooter and I'll race them around the streets, pretending that I'm in one of these movies. <laughs> and uh, it should be fun. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'm sure I will bang on about that as I get closer to going. <laughs> is there is there an event for this or are you just going for the heck of it? Oh, I'm going for a conference. I'm giving a paper at a at a you know, oh, like an okay. academic conference. Um, I would actually be speaking about French films rather than Italian films, but the conference is in Rome, so that seemed like a good reason to uh, to go. Sure. Um, so anyway, but yes, I'm sure I'll go on about that when we when I'm getting there. That's not till July, by which time we'll have finished talking about Poliziotteschi films and moved yeah, on to maybe. something else. Probably, maybe we'll see how quickly yeah we'll see how this goes can quickly and get through so we're planning to do 10 films all together and um we'll try and whiz through them we'll see how well organized i can be with that but um this unlike our space season where we pretty much did every italian space film that there was there's no way we can do that this time because there are dozens and dozens of poliziotteschi films so many. so i 
rather than do the 10, I tried, I looked at lots of films and lists and rather than trying to just do the 10 most popular or even the 10 most obscure or any kind of theme to collecting them together, I've effectively just looked at my own DVD collection. And <laughs> it's, it's not um, a bad it's not a bad way to go yeah well you know i've got some that i've watched some that i still haven't watched and this is a good excuse plus arrow put out a box set last year of uh of films which are really interesting so i just i've basically picked titles at random i've tried to avoid because it would be very easy to just do an all by the same director like we could just do loads of um sergio martino films or loads of DeLeo films or Umberto Lenzi. I've tried to mix things up a bit, um, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But this time we're starting with uh, one from 1972. So I have put the, the 10 that we're doing in date order. So this will be the earliest of all of them. And I have chosen for our first episode one of the big hitters, one of the great early Poliziotesky films, Milano Calibro Nove, or Milan Caliber 9. One heck of a film, yeah. Cue the funky music. <laughs> yes. There's loads of great music in this film. Oh, we should perhaps we should say, in case anybody is listening who's not familiar, Rod, could you describe what a Poliziotesky film is? Oh, um, uh, they're uh, generally uh, there. It's a specifically Italian genre that revolves around uh, uh, crime st- crime stories involving both the police and the gangsters that they're chasing. Um, a lot of uh, it, it, from film to film you can get a different point of view uh this film is primarily focused on the criminals uh but there are there are a number of films in this genre that are primarily focused on the cops it just depends on whatever mm. the the filmmakers decided to do yeah and i read somewhere it might be in the book that i'm going to be mainly drawing on for this season by roberto curti called the italian crime filmography which is a really great reference book and in there he talks about Poliziotesky. The word sort of translates as police-esque or police-ish. Yeah. And it was the name that was given to a bunch of these films by film critics as kind of um kind of a criticism. Like these films are police-ish. They're rather than so it's it's one of those terms that sort of stuck but it's not necessarily complimentary. Um, But it nevertheless has come to uh, sort of define a broad swathe of these films that they're also, the sort of time period that these films come out of was known as the years of lead. And we'll perhaps talk more about the years of lead as we go through. But it was a very violent time in Italy, the 1970s. Um, There was crime, there was bombings, um, gang warfare, police corruption, um, a lot of homegrown or, terrorism in Italy. At the yeah, time. yeah, left-wing terrorists, right-wing terrorists, um, public bombings, um, 
and elements of those things do come into these films. I mean, you read about some movies when they were making films that they're filming people getting shot or bombed in Rome, and then just around the corner, people really did get shot or bombed whilst they were filming. I've read bits about that, like actors talking about this happening for real, just where they were filming and things. It was it was a pretty scary time, and the public um, were just exposed to this all the time in the news. And so it's sort of interesting that the filmmakers picked up on it and started making... You'd almost think like they wouldn't want to watch films about this stuff because it's all happening for real, but for some reason it really caught on. And I think it was also the popularity of films like Dirty Harry and The French Connection were big influences on yeah. this genre. Um, many of the films bear some resemblance to uh, to Dirty Harry or The French Connection. Um or like you said, also the sort of gangster-led ones as well. Um, not so much The Godfather, that didn't seem to be a huge influence. These are much more down-and-dirty, street-level kind of films with with fabulous soundtracks, very often by Stelvio Cipriani. Uh, he seems to be all over these films. But anyway, okay, but let's talk about this one then. So Milan Calibre Number 9. I've got a, a plot summary, a very useful plot summary, which we can use to go through. And okay. we can also talk a little bit about the cast. Maybe we should talk about the cast and the director first. Probably um, a good idea, yeah. As with the last couple of seasons, most of the films that we're doing, I'm coming to for the first time. But oh, okay. I have actually... This is a film that I did see a few years ago, although I realised when I watched it this time, the about the only thing I'd remembered was Barbara Boucher's dance scene. <laughs> I, don't I mean that might not come as a surprise but that was the bit that had really stuck in my head <laughs> um but so fernando de leo um was he is a director who's perhaps best known for this genre although he did make other kinds of films too and he was a writer and a director um what what of his movies what what really stuck out for you well i'm kind of fascinated by fernando de leo's entire career i uh he he broke in as a writer mm. and had a hand in the first two of sergio leone's spaghetti western uh films a fistful mm. of dollars and for a few dollars more and when you know that you realize oh okay there's a reason why every time i see one of his movies that he started once he started directing he always co he always wrote or co-wrote those films as well they're always very tight scripts because he came from that world in the first place where the idea was to keep these things as close to the bone as possible. There's, there's no, uh, there's no. We'll figure it out once we're on the street. There's just really good mm -hmm. scripts here, and so mm -hmm. uh, all of the, all the movies that I've seen by him so so, so far, and uh, this was the first one. This is the first one of his crime films that I ever checked out a couple years back. Uh, once they came out on Blu-ray, it became a lot easier. There are these Blu-ray yeah. Blu sets that came out here in the States on uh, Raro Video. And oh, yeah. you could just plow through these things. These are tight, really well-made, uh, typical of their time as far as the genre is concerned, crime movies. And uh, he makes the cops viable characters as well, but he has a tendency to stick to the criminals. And I think that's all for the better, really, because he's he really seems to have a, a good handle on how to, how should we say, uh, create nuanced bad guys. Yeah. And even sometimes, um, like he wrote the script for Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, 
Yeah. Which is one of the best of those, although he didn't direct that one. That was Ruggiero Deodato. And it makes you wonder why he didn't direct it himself. Perhaps he was just too busy with all the other films he had going on. But Yeah, it may I mean, have been a that, scheduling problem, yeah. Yeah, in that one, the cops are pretty much as bad as the villains. <laughs> um yeah those those are not cops that you would really want to have solving any crimes that you know they're uh they're vicious (laughs) um but yeah he's got an amazing list of credits i mean he wrote loads of westerns as you mentioned he did massacre time the lucha fulci one as well yeah and a whole bunch of stuff and that sort of attitude that of the spaghetti westerns really comes through in these movies that are shot running around on the streets in milan or wherever we are um yeah, so he's really interesting, and I I need to get those um, those sets that you mentioned because this is the only one that I have because I have the Arrow edition of this one, but um, it's really impressive, uh, stylish film, great soundtrack, interesting cast as well. Uh, now, obviously, I've mentioned Barbara Boucher already, who we were just talking about in the previous episode, um, cast because. She's very good at what she does, but also she's extremely beautiful and uh, doesn't mind dancing around. <laughs> and, and almost nothing. Yeah, it's quite an astonishing... The way that sequence is shot, my goodness, we'll get to it. <laughs> the, camera, a, the camera loves her, let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, there's a couple of other interesting people in the cast um, in this film. So the lead actor so is a guy called Gaston Moshin, who uh-huh. plays Ugo Piazza. And apparently he was best known as a comedian. He's, he's, he mainly did comedy films. I know. And when then, I found that out, I was shocked. Yeah. But then after he did this movie, it kind of reinvented him as this moody, kind of stone-faced, um, criminal, kind of scary guy. Which So, yeah, that really changed the direction of his career. But, yeah, I've never seen any of his comedies, but I am kind of curious to see how that worked. But, um, yeah, he's got a very long list of films before he did this one. And uh, interesting that Fernando de Leo would take a chance on on a comedy actor to take the lead role in this film. Well, he has the look. I mean, what's, yeah. you know, he's this shaved head, kind of like bullheaded looking guy who, I mean, he looks intimidating in almost any way you can come at him. And the uh, the success he had in roles like this um it's huge i mean uh, this happened with a few actors but he became so uh so well known and so well thought of i mean he ended up in the godfather part two oh yeah that's true yeah um and so he's up against this guy who's the sort of lead gangster for the area who he worked with who's played by an american actor called lionel stander and I've been reading a little bit about him, and he's really interesting. He was involved in the... Um, he was a Communist Party member who was exposed in the um, House of Un-American Activities and uh-huh. all that stuff. And so he ended up being blacklisted for a while, and that's how he sort of ended up working in in Italy and in Europe and doing all kinds of interesting films in Europe. Well, he had an incredibly long career, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he'd done lots of stuff going right back to the 1930s in Hollywood. And then after the blacklist, he was, well, you know, difficult to find work and ended up doing spaghetti westerns and all kinds of things and then ends up in this film. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at his list of credits, it's insane. I 
I mean, cul de sac in '66, a dandy in Aspic. Uh, Once upon a time in the West. <laughs> heart to heart. Well, yeah, he's that's that's where I knew his face from immediately was because yeah. when I was a kid, that was just a standard television show that everybody kind of watched one way or another. And yeah, he was on every episode of that and all the reunion TV movies in the '90s up until his yeah. death. And he even he even ended up um, later on in the 1970s in 1941. Your um, yeah, yeah. Fa- favorite Spielberg film. <laughs> I wouldn't say favorite, but yeah, he's uh, he's actually quite amusing in that as well. <laughs> yeah. So yes, yeah, so it's a very interesting um, cast. There's one guy in here that we're going to talk about whose character's name is Rocco, played by Mario Adolf. And I just found it impossible to watch this film and not see Bruce Campbell. <laughs> in that role, really? No, just he looks just so much like Bruce Campbell that whenever he's on screen, I just kept thinking it was Bruce Campbell. And he plays... <laughs> He's so over the top. He's like he's like he is a comedy actor in this film. He's playing this film like he's in a comedy, and everyone else is playing it like they're in a gangster film. And one he's, of the things that makes that work is that every other character in the movie really doesn't like him, and they just have yeah. to put up with him. Yeah, yeah. But he looks so much like Bruce Campbell; it's uncanny. Yeah, um, I hadn't thought about so, that until you pointed it out. Yeah. But you're right. So I couldn't see it as being anyone else but Bruce Campbell, which added an extra layer of uh, of entertainment for me. But anyway, shall we go through the plot and then we can talk about it as we go? Excellent idea. Small-time gangster Ugo Piazza is released from jail where he's been serving a three-year sentence for robbery just to find that his former boss, the American, has sent his men to pick him up. Now, straight away, this has missed out the pre-credit sequence which um, is the sort of setup for what has happened here. Yeah. He's been in jail for three years, and um, he, he got caught involved in a crime, and some money went missing. Three three hundred thousand American dollars disappeared during this crime, and so the pre-credit sequence of this film, we see this very elaborate sequence of people swapping bags on tube trains and in train stations and on in a square in Milan and and all of this kind of thing as they're sort of trying to get this money back to to the um this guy Rocco and then he opens the bag of money and it's just full of paper I think right it's just full of paper yeah. so then he, they gather up all these people who've been involved in this crossover thing I think there's three people a woman and two guys and then you cut to this, they're, like, they're beating them up and they don't know where the money is. And then suddenly they're in a cave and they've put gunpowder on them. Uh, no, a dynamite, I mean. And then they blow them up. In the cave, yes. This is in how the they execute these people. Presumably to cause um, the cave to completely cave in and then nobody will ever find them. But you do get the sense that Rocco here is a bit unhinged. Bit of a psycho. So, yeah. So then, three years later, Rocco is the guy who's picking up Ugo as he um, is walking home after he's been released from prison. And it turns out that they think he has he's the one who stole the money. So presumably, the other three people they killed, but Rocco was in, got caught and arrested, so they couldn't kill him then or ask him where it was. So they've been waiting patiently for him to come out of prison 
apparently they tried to get to him in prison. They'd sent people in there to beat him up. But he claims he doesn't know where the money is. He hasn't got it. He didn't steal it. But that's the central sort of driving force in the plot here is that everyone else thinks he stole the money and he says he didn't. And I believe him. He seems like a nice guy. He's very genuine. He wants to just put his head down and live a normal life with his beautiful girlfriend. Which is understandable. And he just, he yeah, he really just, uh, he seems to, I mean, he's, he's, co- he's kind of forced in a way, not really forced, but what else, what else is he going to do? He, he kind of falls yeah. back into working for his old boss again because, one, they want to keep an eye on him. Yeah, because if they do that, then they're not going to kill him. Right. So it's kind of self-preservation. So he, because, yeah, they when they pick him up outside the prison, they beat him up, but he keeps telling them that he hasn't got the money. And then um, that he refuses to go and meet the American. They keep saying, come to the American. He wants to see you. And he's like, nope. So then Rocco and his men track down Ugo again to a hotel, a seedy hotel, it says here. It is pretty seedy. Yeah. It has to be said. And they they catch him with a prostitute and they drag her out of the room and then they beat him up again and then they trash the room and Rocco is just a nutter. He's so like insane. It's a it's a miracle that he's It's a miracle that someone hasn't shot. killed him just to keep exactly. everybody else in the world safe. Yeah, because he's so unhinged. Um so then he goes to vi- visit his friend uh, Kino, who turns out is an old associate of his, who lives with the guy who they call the Godfather. So I think there was a guy who Ugo and Kino used to work for, who was a kind of mafia boss. Yeah. But now he's old and he's blind. Don and he's Vincenzo. lost. Yeah, he's lost all of his power, and he just lives with Kino, who's this guy who used to be an assassin for hire. And um, Ugo goes to see him because he needs money. He hasn't got any money and he needs to pay for the damage to the hotel. Um, And he needs help. But um, Kino doesn't really want to get involved because I guess he's got his own reasons. Well, Well, reason number one would be everybody knows that the American still thinks that Ugo stole that money. So, so he doesn't want him to think that he's involved, I suppose. Right. But he does offer to give him the money because he's a nice guy. But then, um, whilst he's there, who pops up again? But Rocco, he's like, he is like whack-a-mole. He just won't, <laughs> you can't keep him down. Rocco turns up again, starts beating up on the Godfather and smashing up the place. So um, Kino beats him up. Uh, which is really fun because he kind of turns the tables on him. Yeah, Kino Rocco, really takes him to town, man. He yeah. he undoes him, yeah. And Rocco suddenly is not the most powerful guy in the room. And he forces Rocco to... Because, oh, that was it. Rocco grabs the money that Kino's given Ugo and tears it in half. And so um, after Kino has given him a good sorting out, um, he makes him pay the money back, which is great. So Rocco is sort of humbled a little bit. But he's like, oh, the American won't like it. And um, so then this is when um, he goes 
or he gets offered a job. That's right. So he goes to see the American, as you said. He gets offered a job because the American decides not to kill Ugo because if he kills him, he'll never find out where the money is, I guess. Um, so instead, he wants him to work for him. Doing what? Just kind of general gangster stuff? I well, suppose. he's, yeah, kind of as an enforcer, somebody that he can, uh, can send uh, on, on jobs to make sure things get done, which is apparently mm. what his job used to be. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a gopher, a yeah. gangster gopher. Um, so now that he knows that he's safe and he's not going to get killed, he goes to visit his girlfriend or former girlfriend, the beautiful nightclub dancer Nelly. This is where we discover that Nelly is um, dancing in a gold bikini <laughs> in this amazing sequence. The, the cinematography in this is really quite something. It's She's dancing away and they tilt the camera 90 degrees so that you get her full length. <laughs> the widescreen image is nothing but yeah, her. Yeah. It's, but it's her sideways. Yep. So it's like nowadays somebody would be filming her on their phone. Um, but then, you know, trying to play it back, it's playing it sideways. Um, but it's a great sequence. She's um, a very good dancer. And everyone in the whole place is watching her sort of mesmerized. And then Ugo is there. And so she goes to talk to him. Now, of course, just the night before, we've seen him with a prostitute. And so she's like, oh, you got out of jail yesterday. Why didn't you come to see me then? And he has to explain, oh, I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to get killed first. Some lame yeah, excuse. Well, the the idea being, you know, <laughs> if I come straight to you, yeah, they might have just beaten the hell out of you because they would figure that you would that's know true. something about the money. So that's fine. Does it? He didn't mention the fact that he was with a prostitute the night before. That was well, yeah. Uh, you don't you don't tell the whole. You don't truth. Just tell everything. <laughs> no. So while he's there in this bar, he's clearly friends with the bar staff, and he meets this kid who is like, oh, hasn't he? I've forgotten his name, but he's grown. Uh, oh, Luca, that's his name. Oh, yeah, hasn't Luca grown now? He was only so high when you were here before or something. And so it's all very friendly. But she believes, so Nelly seems to believe that he did steal the money. So I think she's hoping that he's going to take her away with him with all this 300,000. But he keeps insisting he hasn't got it. Yeah, he's very clear with her. He's like, I don't know who did. I don't have it. If I had it, why would I be here? Yeah. You know. But he, he's agreed to work for the Americans so he can find out who has it. That's what he's told her. Yeah, he's, so he's, he, he's telling her, which the, the, the simple idea that if he's working for the American again, he might be able to finally figure out who actually yeah. stole the money and framed him. And he, there's a suggestion that it might have been the American himself. Yeah, he just, seems to think that it might have been some kind yeah. of sleight of hand. It's yeah. just like just to mess with everybody or something. <laughs> or to keep them on their toes and yeah. you know, kind of paranoid and, and not trusting of each other so that they'll actually just, you know, stick with, you know, stick with the the the, bo the big boss instead of making possible uh, inroads and, and, and mm. alliances between each other. Yeah. 
And then he has to go with um, another one of these gangster guys. There, I've forgotten their names. There's so many of them. But he has to go with them. To, they, they're doing a deal in a bowling alley. They're swapping some money with um, somebody from Switzerland, I think. There's some kind of exchange going down at this bowling alley. And so Ugo is there just sort of watching the whole thing. And then um, when they do the switch, his guy goes to the toilets of the bowling alley to count the money. But that's when this mysterious guy, we don't know who he is, we don't see his face, turns up, shoots him and steals the money. And so Ugo finds out what's happened and it's all, oh, what's going on? Who is it? Who is it? And then um, Rocco says, oh, we know who did it. We know who did it. Let's go. And they're going to drive and they're going to shoot whoever it was. Um, Now, in the book here, I disagree with his description here. It says here, Rocco is convinced that Don Vincenzo, that's the old godfather guy, and uh, Kino are behind it and prepare a fatal ambush. Now, I don't think that's true. No, I don't think Rocco really believes that they did it. I think he just wants to kill Kino and the Godfather. And so he set this whole thing up because he made, he's, he said to Ugo, right, you're going to be the one who shoots them out the window when we drive past. And so they pull, they, they're driving along and then Kino and the Don Vincenzo come around the corner. And he's like, shoot now, shoot now, shoot now. And I think Rocco just wants to make Ugo kill them. Right. But he refuses to, he refuses yeah. to do it. He won't do it. So then Rocco shoots out the window and kills Don Vincenzo, uh, but not Kino. But yeah, so yeah, in the book, Kino gets a, gets away. Yeah, yeah. In the book, um, he makes it sound like Rocco really believed that, but I think Rocco is just a horrible guy. I agree, <laughs> basically, and so he's just set this up to uh, to upset Ugo, um, and then because of that all went wrong, they beat up Ugo again. Uh, all the time, he still keeps swearing that he didn't steal the money. Yeah, Kino, and, and the thing becomes. I mean, I love, I love the logic that he's using. Ugo is 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 being beat to hell, and he's going, "Why would I, someone you already suspect of stealing three hundred thousand dollars from you, steal another thirty thousand dollars right mm. in front of you? Why would I do that? I, yeah. There's there's no one in this room who has less reason to do something this stupid. Yeah. And um, so then we have, and this is where the film really kicks into the final act. When there's a party at the American's house, it looks like a very nice place. It's like a villa yeah, it's with, kind of a rural estate. A it's, a, it's a really nice place. Although he's got a swimming pool that's empty, which I thought was a bit weird for a party. Uh, he's just yeah. got, got an, an empty pool, which um, is interesting. So there's this party going on. There are girls. There's all the all the gangsters are there. Um, Ugo is there, but then Kino, who is out for revenge. And he's a, we already know he's a proper trained killer. He turns up at this party and just starts shooting everybody. He's mowing um, everybody down. Yeah, it's a massive massacre of this party. Pretty much everybody, including the American, gets shot by Kino. Yep. And so Ugo sees what's going on and he goes out because all the men are trying to fight back and shoot at Kino. And so Ugo is there pretending that he's going to shoot at Kino, but then he just turns around and starts shooting the other guys as well until basically everybody at this party is dead, except for Ugo uh, and the girls. I think they were all hiding in in the house. Um, But unfortunately, Kino has been hit and they have a heart-to-heart and then Kino is dead. So Ugo, at this point, he leaves the party and he leaves quite slowly at first, but then he starts to 
like run and he jumps in a car and where is he driving rod this Out is the, the big middle twist of nowhere. we have no idea where he's going yeah. or what he's doing he ends up at this deserted farmhouse where if we haven't worked it out by now here comes the 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 final act twist he did steal the money he did steal the three hundred thousand dollars three yeah. years before yeah and we he stashed it somewhere and told absolutely yeah. nobody now we don't know how he did it and we don't know how he managed to get the money and hide it in the attic of an abandoned farmhouse in the no, but, it, but it doesn't matter the, the beauty is he did it now it reminded me there's a film and i can't remember what it's called where and i can't even remember who's in it where some guys steal some money and then they hide it in a building site because they're about to get caught by the police and then they go to prison and when they come back a few years later they go to where it was and there's a police station like the building site was, was a <laughs> oh that station. does ring a bell yeah i can't remember what that film is oh, somebody wow. might know and tell us but um it sort of reminded me of that like it's a bit of a risk to hide your money in a in a house for three years like you could come back and anything could have happened to that house it's true but um but yeah so it turns out that he did steal the money so now that everybody is dead including the american he's oh, apart from Apart from Rocco. <laughs> Who's still Rocco, running around out there somewhere, yeah. Yeah, I don't think Rocco was at the party or something. No, he wasn't. Um, so Rocco is okay. Um, so, yeah, so anyway, they he's got the money and he is racing back to Nellie's place. because I think he's given her a call. He's telling well, yeah, her but before to, he gets there, he's picked up by the cops who've oh, also yeah. been threaded throughout this story as well. Because they're no, that's they're, true. We they're trying to the they're trying to lean on uh, Ugo to try to get him. They're they're not so much worried about the money as they're trying to find a way to leverage the problems he has with his old boss, and yeah. as a way to get him to help the cops put the American and his entire syndicate kind of out of business. Um, so they pick him up after he's picked up the money. They pick him up again to ask him some more questions about all the shit that's been going down and. Uh, that's where he runs into Rocco at the police station and yeah. uh, a mutual understanding has come to between the two of them because Rocco now well, Rocco sees, sees, sees the, the sports bag full of money yeah. <laughs> and he realizes that Ugo has actually been playing them all along. Yep. Yeah. I know you, you're right. We forgot to mention the police. There's these two um, policemen who just spend the whole film arguing with each other. And I did read somewhere that uh, Fernando de Leo regretted leaving their scenes in. Well, there's wishes, at least one or two of their scenes that probably should have been excised. Because they don't really add anything to the plot. It's basically yeah. an older commissioner and a younger cop played by yeah. Luigi Pastilli, who I recognize him from loads of films, actually, the younger cop. Um, but those scenes do feel, they do feel like uh, a director who, uh, who's, well, they feel like a writer slash director who is in love with what he's written and doesn't want yeah. to cut it out because they're basically just spend the whole time arguing about the um yeah about sort of injustice social injustice this well, yeah, guy poli- it's it's politics yeah, yeah this guy um mercury is talking he's from the south and in italy the south of italy is very is sort of quite poverty stricken and um so he's talking about this, so the, the level of injustice between people from the south and people from the north. And um, the other guy, he just won't hear any of it. But I thought it was interesting because, like I was saying before, this whole time in Italy was a lot very political. And there's a lot of 
left-wing um, terrorism and right-wing terrorism, and a lot of it was about this sort of social injustice. So it's interesting that some of these arguments were being played out um, by the police, but it did feel a bit like it didn't really add anything to the plot. Which is I mean, presumably... I understand why he would wanted he would have wanted to have this kind of thing in the movie because yeah. it's kind of uh, it's kind of teasing out some of the underlying kind of societal conflicts that are causing the problems that they're all dealing with. Mm-hmm. But it, it, oh, it yeah, that's it, it. it's yes. unnecessary really. Yeah, you're right. Because McCurry says, you know, well, it's no good just going after the American. We need to find out where the money is coming. Yeah. From. Yeah. And, and it's like, and, he, is, and he's not wrong, but at the same yeah. time there, there, it, it is in the film itself. It's kind of a, it's good to have it there, but bad because it slows the film down unnecessarily yeah. and stuff the, that we're really not that interested in. The American is involved in money laundering and it's like, where is this money coming from? And so he's in, so Mercury seems like he's more interested in the bigger picture of trying to solve this. And the commissioner is going along with it for a while, but eventually, eventually he recommends him for promotion just to get rid of him. <laughs> well, I, I kept waiting for them to be a little bit more clear about what they're obviously alluding to, which is the kind of larger idea of we have one side that, one side and the cops who want to cut the head off the snake mm. and the other side who's who's just trying to stab the snake wherever they can find it and it's like yeah but then we'll never kill it you know we'll never yeah. stop it yeah but yeah but I, yeah, so I was reading in the I think it might be in the blu-ray booklet where Fernando de Leo said that as a direct as a writer he was pleased with those scenes but as a director he should have cut them out which I thought was yeah interesting. exactly exactly um but yeah the reason i recognize the actor he's got he's in loads of films but just recently i've seen him in the good the bad and the ugly because i watched that again recently oh yeah and he was in that and he's also in the case of the scorpion's tail the iguana with the tongue of fire bay of blood so he's a guy that you'll recognize if you watch any of these kinds of italian cult movies luigi pastilli but yeah, so the cops uh, have been trying to get Ugo to be an informer, and he won't. Um, but yeah, they end up arresting him, but he's got an alibi. Um, he's not involved, so they end up letting him go. But Rocco has has twigged that Ugo has got the money and been playing them all along. So he's, he says to Ugo, let's let's team up. And um, it's like Rocco, and again, I, I mean, this isn't my observation, I read this somewhere else, but Rocco is the beta wolf. He's not the alpha wolf. Rocco is a guy who recognizes leadership and then will follow it blindly. So Rocco, you know, he'll serve the American and do whatever the American wants. Now the American is dead and Ugo has been playing them all along. Rocco sees Ugo and wants to work for Ugo now. He straight away switches allegiance because that's the kind of guy he is. He's not a born leader, but he's a very dedicated right hand man. So, and it's surprisingly, Ugo, it's surprising to me how well played that is because yeah. it is a third act situation where, where you can actually, you I can actually realize that this psycho lunatic is aware enough of his own position in society and and the mm. way things are that, you know, having someone who tells him what he should be doing is a good idea. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and it's just the look on his face when he realizes, and he just so quickly changes, and all of a sudden he wants to be Ugo's best mate despite having been beating him up for the last ninety minutes. But Ugo says he'll consider it. He tells him, you know, I'll think about it. So anyway, Ugo leaves and um, heads off to see Nelly, um, 
gets to Nelly's place, but what he doesn't oh, yeah, because realize, he and Nelly, their their plan is to take the money and get the hell. Get, I think they're going to South America. They're just getting out. Yeah, just oh Beirut, isn't it? They keep talking about Beirut. Is it Beirut? I can't remember. Yeah. Okay, okay. They keep talking about going to Beirut, um, which I don't know why. I think Beirut may have been a bit of an Italian like colony at the time, a popular place for people to go from Italy. I'm not entirely sure why. Well, I know in the um, 70s, Beirut was considered like a resort town. So. Yeah. And a good place to disappear to, I suppose. Yeah. Particularly if the money that you have is uh, ill-gotten gains. Also possibly um, a good a good place to use as a, you know, kind of like a, 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 a an airline hub and you can mm, go anywhere from there. Yeah. But of course, what Ugo doesn't know is that Nelly has actually been cheating on him this whole time with Luca, our little boy from the bar, who's a big man now. And Luca is the one who stole the other money. Luca has been the thorn in their side all this time. And Luca is hiding, ready to kill Ugo as soon as he turns up at her apartment. And poor Ugo, he's managed to, to get this money after hiding and going through all this stuff. And he turns up her apartment and Nelly just screams like, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. No compassion at all. That look and, on Ugo's face as she's screaming, yeah. shoot him. It's and he it, realizes, that look of utter, utter of shock and betrayal. Is yeah, because he really felt like he'd done it. And he really obviously, you know, cared for her and didn't have a clue that she'd been playing him and that they were just going to kill him and steal the money. So Nelly was playing the long game as well. She was waiting for him to turn up with the money so she could do this. And so they do. It's really sad. They kill Ugo. He shoots him in the back. Um, but then, just while they're grabbing all their stuff to leave, who should turn up but Bruce Campbell again? Because <laughs> he's, he's dead keen to come and work for Ugo. He's like a little puppy dog. He's followed him there. Um, and, but then he sees what's happened. And this is a really actually very dramatic scene. It's a, a different side of um, of Rocco. And, well, yeah, do you want to describe what happens? Well, I mean, he he, he beats Luca to death. Yeah. And he seems so head. enraged that it's be, he's beside himself and he beats him to death and then punches Nelly. And it seems yeah. to have killed her too. Oh, yeah. He's like, oh, that's true. Yeah, he punches her in the face. Yeah. Or was that Ugo? No, Ugo punched her in the face, I think. Didn't he? Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah, 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 you're right. I think Ugo punched her in the face just before the last shot. And so she's bleeding profusely. And Luca is trying to help her. And that's when that's, that's, what, that's when, when Rocco, Rocco turns comes in and, and beats Luca to death. Yeah. And it's great. He um, So he's smashing Luca's head against a table, screaming, you can't backstab a man like Ugo Piazza. You'd better not even touch someone like Ugo Piazza. Don't even go near someone like Ugo Piazza. Like, it's, you know, like Ugo Piazza is suddenly his best friend and he's had it taken away from him. Um, and so he kills Luca. But then the police turn up. Like, because they sure. followed Rocco from the police yeah. station. Maybe they just figured if they let this puppy go, they could yeah. just follow him and they would find something bad at the end. And, and they, they did. Right. And they did. So um, that's it. So the end of the movie is basically it didn't work out for anyone because now presumably Rocco is going to be locked up because he's just murdered Luca. Luca is dead. Nelly is possibly dead or certainly got a smashed face. Ugo is dead. 
and the camera just cuts to this cigarette that Ugo had left on the table. And that's the end. Crime does not pay. No, it certainly does not. That not is the moral film. of the story. But, um, I mean, it's great. Isn't it great? It's an amazing piece of work. I yeah. This is, even if I did not know it, uh, I would suspect that the people who wrote this film had literary aspirations, and of course, Fernando mm. de Leo was a was a was a published poet, uh, mm. writer of short fiction. He'd written a novel before he became a scriptwriter. Oh, that's this true. A, and this adapted from a um, a short story, I believe, or there's a short story collection. Yeah, written by someone else, from. something that yeah. he admired and was able to adapt. Yeah, yeah. So it's got sort of literary origins, although according to Roberto Curti. There's like a couple of moments from this film that are taken from the book, and the rest was all Fernando de Leo's work. Yeah, but who could argue with the finished product? Yeah. Because oh, it's this amazing! Is, this is simply amazing. This is brilliant from beginning to end, and of course, of course, it's bleak and it's downbeat. I mean, this is this is uh, what I would refer to as doomed from the start filmmaking. Mm-hmm. These are characters that never have any real hope. I mean, they, they, you, li- you like watching them go through the motions and you, at a certain point, if it's done well enough, you actually are kind of really hoping that somebody gets away with this stuff. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're all doomed. I mean, there, there's this feeling throughout it. Uh, and it's, and it's helped by having the threat of the cops, you know, constantly, you know, harassing them and, and asking them questions and bothering them all the time. But the idea that our kind of, kind of our futures are controlled by the powerful, no matter whether you're the cops or the criminals, either way, it's just, it's, it's rather bleak. And it's this instance of watching these criminals trying to play this really rough hand that they've been dealt kind of rough out, whatever the, whatever the, the the situation presents them and, and do as well with what they've got in front of them. And it's still never really being enough. It's, it's, it's bleak, but it's incredibly well done. It's, it's like a great depressing novel. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are so many stunning visuals as well. It's just really, really well shot. And I'm not just talking about Barbara Boucher dancing. Oh no, it's beautiful. Um, and this is one of the things where, Clearly, uh, DeLeo had spent a lot of time uh, before he got behind the camera as a director soaking up the things that make other, you know, that make other films work. Mm-hmm. So his his directorial hand is very firm. He knows yeah. what he's doing. Yeah. And I think this film was also, I mean, the success of this movie and just the films that he went on to make were clearly an inspiration on other Italian filmmakers who are make who went on to make these kinds of movies as well. Oh, I agree. I'm sh- I'm I mean, sure you, you can see the this you can see this film as successful as it was and as good as it is being used as a template for years after the effect, mm-hmm. after the fact. Yeah, which I'm sure we will probably notice when we. Um, <laughs> this when is we true. Get going, yeah. Uh, but well, yeah, of we, course, this being a, an early '70s film, uh, let, let's let's. There's some there's some idiosyncratic things about this. First of all, the joke that Troy Gwynn and I used to make when we first started the Nashi cast, which was the typical '70s ending, which means that it's downbeat where everybody dies, uh, mm-hmm. everybody dies or everybody goes to jail. It's the uh, the yeah. the typical '70s ending where you you leave the theater going, oh wow, okay. <laughs> but the uh, the another typical '70s thing for this is uh, the score, which I I really like, but. Uh, the, the, although the score was composed by uh, Louis Enrique, uh, is it Bakalov? Bakalov? 
it's performed by the the progressive rock band Osana, mm. who I knew nothing about. But I remember I remember every time I've watched this movie, I think the same thing, which is is it Jethro Tull doing the soundtrack? What the hell's going oh, on? Right. Here? Because it's it it is very prog rock at times, yeah. including the use of a flute. Mm. And so I'm just going, wow, oh, okay. it just it sounds a little Jethro Tull here. wasn't a shock to find out a little bit about this this italian prog rock band that uh, that did this and to see you know like the you know they definitely included uh a flute and a saxophone and just everything else under the sun and uh got gotta admit it gives it a different it gives it a different uh flavor the, there's enough in the score that is typical of the times mm. but there's also those moments where you're like oh okay this is this is a rock band really yeah. really kicking it up here no it's great yeah i'm gonna put in some bits in the show definitely it's really fun the music in this film yeah and interesting that it, i mean because this is quite early like we said it's 1972 but the, the kind of score that this film has would be you know, the, the, that's what i like about these films is it's quite contemporary and it's often very upbeat and pretty funky stuff that that the composers were coming up with for these films it's um I've, I've, i often listen to some poliziotesky like compilation stuff on my uh on you know when i'm just sitting here doing some work i'll have some some of this stuff on in the background because the music is always so fun another thing is the look of this film i, I mean yeah the film came out in 1972 but i gotta admit not quite all of the fashions and not quite every interior feels this way but there's a certain kind of timelessness to what is on screen it feels mm. like something that is definitely taking place in the early 70s but it doesn't feel ridiculous in its in its period detail it feels a right. little like it could be taking place in the 60s maybe yeah. even the 50s you know it, it doesn't feel like it's wedded to the early 70s even though that's exactly when it was mm. the even the the, even the interiors, all the the set design and stuff like that, it it you know, it, it doesn't feel like you're looking at something that is trying to that's striving really hard to present itself as 1972. Yeah, it, it's, no, it's, it's very interesting. It, there's a there's a timeless look to it that is very effective, and mm. I don't know. That's one of those things where you wonder if when they were making the film they were going for that or if it's just something that happened as they yeah. made, as they made it. I don't know. It's also interesting that. Um... Like although it's set in Milan, it's not the beautiful touristy bits of Milan that we see. There's a little bit in the sort of piazza um, at the beginning of the film, but for the most part, it's all the modern industrial areas and the high-rise buildings 
that look like a kind of fairly modern, not particularly attractive city. It doesn't yeah. have that tourist aspect that that you might expect with these films. So they they sort of it's very modern from that point of view as well, I suppose. But yeah, you're right about the clothes and the the look of the film. Another thing I should mention, of course, as well as um, Rocco being Bruce Campbell, Ugo is not a million miles away from being Jason Statham. And, and and I was going to bring that up as well because yeah. there's there's a point where at times in the first part of the film Rocco is insulting Ugo and referring to him as potato because mm-hmm. of that big shaved head of his mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's not too much of a leap to see him you know because Ugo Ugo is trying to keep a very stone face not give anything not give anything away never get emotional because he knows if he reacts to any of the stuff that they're doing to him that that'll just encourage them and they'll do more of it mm-hmm. and that is very similar to the way Statham plays a lot of his characters in different yeah. action films as well where he knows that if he expresses himself in a violent way or he gets if he gets too out of uh too out of a very thin area of actions then he's going to pay a heavy price and yeah it, it's it, there's a there's a similarity there definitely so this so there you go then so the remake of this film would star jason statham and bruce campbell um, <laughs> who would who would play barbara boucher's character Ooh. that's the question probably lily collins because she's in everything these days it's a good question. Um, I have no idea. I, yeah. I, I never thought about it. <laughs> but yeah, those two definitely. There's definitely Jason Statham vibes. I mean, this feels like one of those. Yeah, one of those movies where he's a you know a former gangster being dragged back in for uh, yeah. into this world he's trying to get out of. You know, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that people like Guy Ritchie watch these movies as well. Oh, certainly they have to because there's there's yeah. a, you, you can see the tendrils of the way they tell their stories. Uh, and even the kinds of stories you can see them there and I'm reminded uh, of a movie that just came out last year directed by Guy Ritchie uh, starring Jason Statham called Wrath of Man oh yeah yeah really plays a lot like exactly this kind of movie it has the same kind of feeling and uh, it's probably one of the reasons why I I really liked Wrath of Man a lot is the reason that I really like (laughs) Caliber 9 I mean they're the same kinds of film that's interesting. Oh, there you go. Yeah, definitely. Well, hey, thank you. Um, I think we'll leave it there. We've got lots more to say about Poliziotesky films coming up. Um, let us know if you're listening. Hopefully you will. If you're listening to me saying, if you're listening, then you are listening. Then <laughs> you're listening. Um, uh, so let us know what your favorite Poliziotesky films are or any that you think we should be covering. Um, and we can look at adding some in. Um you can contact us on Twitter and also on email. The links are all in the show notes. Um, on Twitter, we are at the Wild Wild Pod. Um, email is wildwildpod at gmail.com, I think. But anyway, it's all in the, <laughs> it's all in the show notes. I don't... Look at the show notes, yes. Yeah, it's all there. So please get in touch. It would be great to hear from you. And um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Rod. Uh, this is going to be a fun one, I think. I think Slightly, you're right, yeah. I think there will be less painful films to sit through than we've currently, than our previous seasons have done anyway. <laughs> well, com- so, comedies are hard, man. Comedies are really difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there you go. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Uh, 
I've got to go away now and remix our theme tune to sound more like it was made in the 70s. So by the time this podcast goes out, hopefully we'll have some uh, wacka wacka guitar. (laughs) Maybe maybe some flute you can Jethro Tull it Yeah, that's it. I'm going to have a go at progging progging it up. Right. Thank you, Rod. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back again soon for more police and gangster action. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.